Welcome to Saltier Politics. Uh, this week, Emily, we have a great episode. We are joined by Evan Siegfried, um, who is a Republican strategist. He's a frequent guest on Fox and on MSNBC and um, just has been um, in and around our world for a very long time. And it's nice to talk to somebody of the opposite political party, I think, about where he thinks things are going. Um, he, We had a great discussion with him. And I really think the Republican Party, especially after Trump, I would like to see them get stronger because, again, I only think that will make a stronger Democratic Party and maybe, you know, bad policies for the Democrats that will make Dems rethink those and or double down on them, but really get a position. And again, I think a stronger Republican Party can only make a stronger Democratic Party in getting away from a lot of the racial rhetoric and the sexist rhetoric from the Trump administration, I think will be very good for the uh, Republican Party. Agreed. All right. Take a listen, Evan Zickfried. So, Evan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me and, uh, you know, blackmailing me into this. I am blackmailing you into this. I'm blackmailing you. Let me just say we had Steve Kornacki on the podcast. I think we will never, ever stop mocking him for Bud Light being his drink of choice. You, however, went a little <laughs> bit more upscale than that. Glenn Livett 12. Hopefully, um, though, you're not inspiring all our next guests to get a Glenn Livett because we'll go broke. We'll go broke. That's true. <laughs> Glenn Livett is not Bud Light. I could, probably, I could probably buy all of Anheuser-Busch for what that bottle costs. Well, me. you should be glad I didn't say a specific type of wine because you would have probably then gone broke. You're such an elitist. <laughs> yes. Seriously. You are being such an elitist wow. right now. Oh, my right. gosh. What kind of Republican are you? Oh. You're supposed to be a man of the people, your party. Right. Um, let's talk about let's talk about the Republican Party. So what happened between when you wrote a very, I thought, a very good and prescriptive book about what the GOP could do to expand its base. Does it really need to expand its base? It does, because Donald Trump won using voters who are not going to be with us much longer. Right. The Donald Trump voter was older, white, and more rural living to quasi-suburbs as well as less educated. And millennials, my generation, we are the most educated generation in the history of the country. We are the largest uh, sector of the workforce and the largest portion of the country right. via generation. We've overtaken baby boomers. And now we're the largest part of the electorate. We don't turn out as much right now as baby boomers, but it's starting to shift. And the millennial generation is having this allergic reaction to Republicans that is so bad that we're not recruiting them to that. When there were younger Republicans who said, hey, we think we have a problem with right. our generation. We might want to do something about it. And the Republican Party's response was to put memes up on social media. Oh, we'll win them over with memes about how, you know, being Republicans cool or cool story, bro, memes or whatever it was, the crazy ex-girlfriend meme. Mm -hmm. That didn't do a thing. That just made us look stupid right. and uh, like we were pandering. And then a 2012 election came around and Mitt Romney lost and the party was had its autopsy report, which said we need to reach out to younger generations as well as minorities. The autopsy was thrown in the trash and Trump went and he was successful. I give him credit for that. He ran a campaign that was able to win despite all of these demographic challenges that should have helped Hillary Clinton win. That also goes to Hillary Clinton's own incompetence as a uh, candidate. But we have to remember who are millennials. They're not 18-year-old kids. The youngest millennial right now is 21. The oldest is going on 38 in next year. And they have kids of their own. Right. They're putting away for college for their kids. They're dealing with things that are, uh, younger millennials might not be, but they're dealing with things that the conservative uh, leaders and thinkers said, oh, no, the, you know, once they have to pay taxes, 
then they'll just become conservative and come home to us. Well, but that's not true. We well, are. speaking of home, though, do you feel like you belong in a political party? Because looking at your Twitter feed, you don't you say you're a Republican, but it, it feels like you're going through a little bit of an identity crisis. Well, I'm still a Republican. I feel like the Republican Party isn't what I want it to be perfectly. And I don't think it should be. Even if I if we were having a harmonious relationship, I don't think we should sync up 100 percent because I think somebody should be able to challenge uh, and really bring out the best in the party. I don't think that a lot of my millennial Republican friends are feeling very connected to the party either. They feel like it's just sort of this party that is veered off course and needs a course correction. And that's going to happen. But the question is, when will it be two years from now? Will it be 10 years from now? We'd prefer it be sooner rather than later. And that doesn't mean undermining Donald Trump. It means calling him out when he does wrong and praising him when he does good. I didn't support President Trump when he was running for office. I was a vocal critic of his. But the liberty I feel right now, because I think we have a broken political system overall. I think Democrats have a whole host of problems, and I'm not going to keep silent about them. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go after uh, the Republican Party and what I think they should be doing. And it's actually a very liberating feeling because I don't have to give talking points and stick to a party line. I can just say, you know what, this is my opinion. And it it works. And I feel like we've come to the actual self-actualization of cable news in everyday life now, right? For, for all of us, Emily um, still works in cable news. You and I both appear um, on cable news. Uh, I used to work at Fox. So, you know, the things that you used to do on air, maybe for ratings or the things you used to do on air just because it made for a good show, um, it used to be that people would go into the green room and, and hug, it out, out, hug yeah. it out, right? Um, or get drinks together afterwards. Um, but I feel like the country may have taken us too seriously. And I feel like the country may have actually believed that this is what happens in real life. And they've taken it to that degree where people don't have civil conversations about politics anymore. I think the media and how we access it plays a role, but I don't think cable news is as big of a cause of this as people would think. What is? I think it's part, it's loss of trust in government. In 1964, 77% of the American people trusted the federal government and had no reason not to. And the Kennedy assassination, Vietnam, the Martin Luther King assassination, Bobby Kennedy, the 1968 Democratic National Convention, Pentagon Papers, Nixon and Watergate, that is 10-year period, really, 64 through 74. Just the public trust in government eroded. And then, yes, media changed. It wasn't three networks where you'd have a nightly newscast and somebody trusted to say this is what the facts and only that. And um, when, oh gosh, I'm completely blanking on his name. Uh, when he went in uh, the Tet Offensive, uh, the CBS newsman, Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite, he yeah. He went to see the Tet Offensive on his own and- And called BS on it. Yeah, and he right. called BS, which was an extraordinary moment in American history because reporters didn't do that often. They only did it when it was very serious. And he was the most trusted man in the nation. And when you have Walter Cronkite saying, it's no longer worth fighting this war, we have to find a way to exit with dignity because more people will die. That's a very serious moment. And people took that to heart. And I think we saw media, the unintended consequence. Some news broadcasters who came up after that felt that they could creep opinion in more and more to presenting as opposed to presenting facts. Also, the nature of media changed, especially with the internet. Now we, don't we can silo ourselves off and go and read something from something that will reaffirm our worldview. 
So people will go to the Huffington Post or Breitbart or to Gateway Pundit, if you can call that a news source, in my opinion, or to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. I always try and read right-wing and left-wing media and make up my own mind, but I don't think many people do that. Most people throughout the world are inherently good and kind and caring about one another despite our differences. I think the best example of that was a group uh, did a sociological experiment in the 2016 campaign. They went to Trump rallies wearing full-on Hillary gear and carrying an empty dog leash, Mm -hmm. saying, hey, have you seen my dog? And all the Trump supporters who would be inclined to mock and yell at said, oh, how can we help you find this dog? And they had an actual dog that they had released into the crowd and they helped find the dog and everybody was smiling and just happy. And they did the same thing going to Hillary events uh, dressed in Trump gear. So that gives me hope. And then also look at the reaction to the Tree of Life shooting. The country overall was outraged. Some people were thrilled by it, but they also happened to wear, you know, swastika armbands and be racists and Nazis. And those do not represent the majority of the American people. The Justice Department is going to come down very hard on this man. Same with Pittsburgh itself. And this man is likely going to be executed for his crimes. And I think that in this tragic, even though it's so tragic, is a little sliver of hope that we can all cling to. I think Americans and the world really like certain things. I have a question for both of you. How do you deal in today's society with the moral relativism that's happening a lot with the Republican Party and not just the Republicans, Democrats do it too, but I think to a greater extent and a more damaging extent, you're seeing Trump give examples, say, well, this happened with them. And Julie, and how, how would you guys two deal with that? Uh, more of a, I mean, you know, everything is, if you go on, if you go on Twitter and you make a comment about Donald Trump, you'll get the, but Hillary, but Obama, um, all the time. And I think it's just a totally normal human reaction. Um, to that end, I think people almost root for the Jersey and not so much for the, for, for anything else anymore. I think it's partially that. And then also I think Democrats have overstepped at certain points and reminded Republicans why we were at each other's throats. Donald Trump is not the cause of the political dysfunction and animosity that's here. He's a symptom of it. But how do I respond to what aboutisms? I tell people that's a what aboutism. Right. And a what aboutism is a weak argument. You can say that if you would disagree with what I'm saying or the criticism, take it up on the merits of the situation itself. And then if you want to talk about after that, Somebody else having done that, why didn't I criticize it and say, hey, that's hypocrisy? I'm absolutely willing to have that conversation. I think that principles are only such if you stand by them when they're inconvenient. And I want to try and judge everyone the same way. And if there are extenuating circumstances and I'm going to let somebody off the hook because of them, I will explain why using those. But that's not everybody has the time or ability to put the effort in to put a long diatribe. When people go after me uh, spouting pure nonsense, I'll either say it's that or if they're spewing hate, I'll just retweet it and correct their grammar. How long are you going to give the Republican Party um, your support, do you think, if Trump, if a Trump type figure really takes over the party long term? I mean, do you think that the party's permanently in the thrall of Donald Trump, the way Reagan really had an influence on the party, you might argue for good for 40 years? Is Donald Trump going to have that kind of party influence for the next generation? Is that something that's going to allow you to stay well, in the party? It really depends upon the next two to three right. federal election cycles. Do voters punish Republicans because of Donald Trump or do voters reward Republicans? Uh, the midterms are six days away right now. And I think voters are going to be punishing Republicans because of Trump. But one of the questions I have for a never Trumper would be, 
Okay. I don't if, label myself that or, anymore. Okay. It's dead. It it's died not the dead. day of the election. Okay. Happened. Okay. So, but you know, there are a lot of Congress men and women on the Republican side who would go all Trump all the time. And how do you kind of reconcile that? Because you want to see a Republican card, but you may not agree with Trump, but you know, these people are going to just be behind Trump all the time. The funny thing is when you talk to these people in private, they think he's absolutely incompetent and they say but some they're going to the vote his legislation through. they are because they know the base will punish them and they are weighing the thought of okay if i go out and go against donald trump what happens to me a primary challenge comes up and then i'm thrown out of office in favor of somebody who is 100 vocally trump and they're going to be there for 20 30 years so a lot of republican members of congress are making this private calculation of you know we either keep our heads down or we do enough cheerleading to satisfy him and the base to go forward also donald trump his agenda isn't just, you know, the trade and the wall and things. He has a lot of Republican items on there. Tax reform, most Republicans agree on. Repealing and replacing Obamacare, most Republicans agree on. Not, the so, judges. Much, not so much anymore. I mean, they're kind of running away from Obamacare repeals, right? I mean, they're kind of pretending. Well, because they, it's very unpopular right now. And but, they saw but that's, the, you know, you, you raise a good point because you have somebody like Paul Ryan, who to me has the freedom or would have had the freedom for the last year or so to do whatever he wanted. Um, he's not running for anything again. Um, he's done, but yet he furthered an agenda that he's at least on paper said he's always opposed, which is a deficit busting agenda, an agenda that's not as fiscally conservative with a small C as, as, as he always would have advocated for. What about somebody like Paul Ryan, who really could have made a mark and said, look, I'm the speaker of the house and there's just some things that I'm not going to go for. I think he was Why looking he toward history. How do you want to be? Do you want to be remembered as a speaker who went on on your own terms, or a speaker who was ousted via coup within your own party? But you think he would have been ousted in the last six months to a year? Yeah. You think he was worried about that? Okay. I really think that that would have happened. Plus, I think our thinking: How do we want to be remembered right. in the first line of our obituary? You know, I have mine, which is a uh, Dalai Lama incident. But um, well, you can't just throw that out there. Yeah, not not. not I had to move out of my apartment uh, five or four years ago, and because of a leak that destroyed my floors, Mm -hmm. and I had to have you know a disaster recovery firm come in, and my insurance company actually put me up in this month to month hotel nearby, and who happened to be staying there was the Dalai Lama. Nice. I had just gotten my dog a few months before and he was still a puppy and he had this thing for tassel and fringe. And one night I was taking him out for a walk and the llama was in the elevator with his security guards and he started going for the llama's robe and trying to rip it off. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, I'm going to be the guy who's known as his dog pants the llama in an elevator. It's going to wind up on TMZ. And, you know, I'm apologizing throughout the entire elevator ride. I'm pulling the dog back. It's cramped. And I look at him and I say, you know, I'm so sorry, your holiness. Blank stare, doesn't even react to me, doesn't even look out of the corner of his eye. Oh, my God, you know, this is worse. My anxiety and agita is kicking in. I wish I had the entire bottle of the Glenlivet to do as an IV in my arm uh, to bypass the middleman at that right. point. The, the doors open and the llama steps out, takes five steps, turns around sees how mortified I am, smiles and says, when I die, I hope to come back as a dog as happy as he is. And then just turns around and walks <laughs> What a away. great story. Mic drop moment. What and a great story. It's just, I have the weirdest encounters with world leaders and famous people. It's always awkward or funny, but it's just weird as hell. We have this little thing we do on this podcast called um, Two Truths and a Lie, where we actually learn a lot of interesting things, I think, based on that. So why don't you give us Two Truths and a Lie, and we'll try to guess which one is the lie. 
My dog is a model. Okay. I've had an awkward men's room encounter with Vladimir Putin. Okay. And Tina Fey stole my coffee from Starbucks. Well, I know Tina Fey lives in our neighborhood, so I'm going to say that's probably true. What's the lie? Um, I'm going to I'm going to go with the first one. I'm going to go with the dog as a model, although I don't know. After this Dalai Lama story, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I after the Dalai, and you just said that you had a lot of awkward experience with world leaders. So I'm going to say the Putin one is true. So I'll have to go with the dog as a model as the lie. Maybe I was setting you up oh. by saying I have a lot of awkward experiences with oh. world leaders. Um, the former president of Kyrgyzstan, by the way, I met him. And then two weeks later, he's overthrown via coup. So oh, okay. I think I'm at fault for that. Uh, Clearly. The lie is neither. You were both wrong. What is it? Rowdy, first of all, is a model. A, so what's the lie? The lie? Tina, Tina Fey. Tina Fey. I don't drink coffee. Oh, did she steal something else of yours? No. Starbucks? Oh, no. <laughs> Have you ever seen around the neighborhood? Uh, a couple of places. Yeah. yeah. She lives on the Upper West Side. But Vladimir Putin and I have Please. had an awkward men's room encounter. What? Yes. Well, you got to expand on that. Well, it was 2005. I was meeting my late godfather at Shanli. Okay. Um, and, this and, very fancy Chinese restaurant. Right. Sit down, you know, at the time it was, you know, suit and tie. And it was during the UN General Assembly. And the way they had the restaurant cordoned off, you could see tons of security and the, you know, the Russian security team and then the U.S. support security team. And they were all sitting at half of the tables in the restaurant and they set up decorative place settings for the empty tables. And they always take them away when you have actual patrons. But the decorative place settings were never removed while these, you know, diplomatic security agents were all sitting there. So you knew that was a problem. At the bar, there was a guy with the Russian equivalent of the nuclear football handcuffed to his wrist, throwing back vodka shots. But you couldn't figure out which world leader it was. Yes. Uh, And halfway through the dinner, I got up to go to the bathroom and I went into or I was about to go into the bathroom. A security agent stops me and frisks me. And then I go into the bathroom and there are just two urinals using one of the urinals, Vladimir Putin. I'm mosey up to the other, realizing who it is. And I'm freaking out at this point and uh, talk about performance anxiety. It's just sort of, okay, no sudden (laughs) movements. And all of a sudden, as I'm there, what felt like an eternity, I hear Oh, these feel so good. Oh, my God. And I look to my left, and there's Putin looking at me, smiling. In Russian? He says this in English? In English. Okay. And I'm like, okay. And I just said the first thing that came to mind. Mr. President, in America, we call it the pause that refreshes. He gives me this completely confused look, turns over his other shoulder, and then yells something at the security guard. The security guard runs in and uh, translated it. And Putin threw back his head laughing, says, oh, that's good, good. Uh, Must tell cabinet and walked out. Didn't wash his hands, by the way. Really? Yes. So that's how we always know that Vladimir Putin is not our ally. I'm not Um, surprised. And so I go back and I see. You're lucky you have any sushi. (sighs) Because God knows what would have happened to you. Oh, God. I'm mortified. And by the hand washing? Just all of it. Oh, my gosh. Keep going. I go back to my table and I see my late godfather and I say to him, you know, Jay, Jay, I finally figured out who it was. It was Putin. He's like, how do you know? Well, we just had a thing in the men's room. I'm so excited and sort of worked up. He's like, what? I said, yeah, yeah, I'll explain later. So, you know, 10 minutes later, an aide to Putin comes to the table and says, you know, the president enjoyed your company in the men's room so much that he and the people of Russia would like to buy you two drinks. He said, thank you, you know. So they sent us a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue Label Scotch. Nice. And it was really nice of him. Thank the president. 
the aide walks away. And then my late father says, you know, what exactly happened between the two of you in the men's room to get this? Should I be aware of something? And it's just the weirdest thing that has ever happened to me. And this was when he was, you know, 2005. So he wasn't viewed as some sort of antagonist of America or an enemy. He was just viewed as somebody who could kill you because he was ex-KGB, but still a quasi-ally because President Bush uh, said he was. He looks in his soul. Yeah. And saw a good man. I wonder if he takes I, I that I looked back. and saw a man who should have washed his hands. I, me too. I see a man with no soul because he has no hygiene. And if you have no hygiene, I really think you have no soul. Although this makes the pictures of Trump shaking Putin's hands now just so much better. Because now every time I see a, a photo of that, I'll smile on the inside. And Trump's, and, a ma- and Trump's a massive germaphobe. Imagine if he knew your story. Oh, my God. Somebody should tell the president this story. Uh, hopefully he'll listen. <laughs> okay, Evan, Siegfried, thank you so, so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. Um, I know your book's been a little um, out of, is it out of publication or can we, can somebody still purchase it? You can still get it on Amazon. There are plenty of copies left. GOP, GOP, GPS. Um, Uh, It makes both a great paperweight, Target, Kindling, or if you actually want to read it. I don't care what you do with it as long as you buy it. I have it in my office and um, I think you gave it to me a Fox in a green room once, but I will go out and actually spend money on it. You don't have to do I'm that. I'm happy to do I, the that. The Glenn Livet works. Excellent. Oh, you're not going home with that. Are you kidding? Uh, we're, I didn't think we're, I was gonna milk that, that. we're gonna milk that bottle for the next guy who drinks disgusting brown products of some sort. You can have mine, by the way, because I can't. Thank you. I, I, mean, can, I can't even smell it without oof. Okay. Thanks so much, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks. Evan had quite a story, Julie, about Putin which I absolutely did not expect going into this interview. I thought we would just be talking about millennials, the Republican Party, and never Trumpers. So this was quite illuminating. You know, I've been to Shun Lee, the restaurant that he alluded to many times. I live in the neighborhood, and I'm kind of grossed out now, and I'm glad I'm not a guy. I don't have to use the men's room there because creepy things go on there with Vladimir Putin, apparently, which I don't never really want to be a part of. Um, you know, uh, we are taping this for the week after Thanksgiving. So although it's not Thanksgiving now, um, I do want to talk about what makes us not salty, but what makes us grateful. Um, so why don't you go first? I would have to say strong female friendships and mentorships from you, Julie. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah. From my mom. Uh, just, you guys have really taught me a lot and I continue to keep learning. Oh, that's really nice. And I learned a ton from you as well. So, um, on the same theme, I think what I'm thankful for this year is that women have really um, taken ownership of our political process. I think it's just a wonderful thing to see women mobilizing. Um, and really, when I think women start seeing that they do have the power and how powerful the vote is, because when women did get the vote in 1919, you saw mortality rates go down, you saw hygiene in hospitals get better, and you saw child labor laws. So I think the more women who are engaged... I think the more important issues will be addressed. Um, I agree with you tremendously, and I cannot wait to see what these women do next year on both sides of the aisle. And this is not just um, relegated to to liberal women or progressive women or Democrats. On both sides of the aisle, I think we have a lot to learn from women everywhere all across the country. So on that note, hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving, and we will see you soon.